It's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations this week. Did anyone see any footage of other celebrations? Uh, I saw a BBC interview with a former Royal Protection Officer, a man called Richard Giffen, and he tells the story of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II encountering two American tourists. I don't know if you've encountered American tourists when you've been overseas, but they tend to stick out for certain reasons. She was taking a walk, as she tends to do, in her um, Scottish holiday house, Balmoral, and she encountered two American hikers. And the Queen would always stop and say hello, apparently, when she saw people. But it was clear to Richard Giffen that these two Americans had not recognised the Queen. The American gentleman was telling the Queen where he had come from and where he was going, and sure enough, he asked Her Majesty where she lived. She said, I live in London, but I have a holiday home just on the other side of the hills. And the American said to her, well, how often have you been coming up here? And she said, well, I've been coming up here a long time. I've been coming up here since I was a little girl for 80 years. And he said, well, if you've been coming up that long for 80 years, you, you must have met the Queen. And the Queen said, well, I haven't. But Dick the Royal Protection Officer, he meets her regularly. And the American, at that moment, puts his arm around Dick, quite excited that he is meeting someone who has met the Queen and asks the Queen to take a photo of him with the Queen's close protection officer. Now, I understand this is a true story, and this shows what great sense of humour Her Majesty has. But it's interesting, isn't it, that you could be walking and quite oblivious for whatever reason and be talking to the Queen and yet not know it. We're going to see in Exodus chapters 25 to 27 that the presence of God is unmistakable. There is no way possible that the royal presence of God could escape those who saw it. What we're going to see in these couple of chapters is that the awesome presence of God is described in a particular way. It's described in, this, uh, in these instructions for the tabernacle. Now, these are some of the details of the book of Exodus. are often skipped over because there's a lot of repetition and there's a lot of detail that escapes us. And we're not going to get into all the detail, but we are going to get into some of it this morning. Because what we're going to see is that God chose to graciously dwell with his people. He is not an absent father. Having rescued his child, Israel, he is now with them. He's present with them. He's involved and invested in, the, in their lives. He's present. And his presence brings something. It brings reassurance for his people. His presence sets Israel, apart from all the other nations, the Almighty God is dwelling with them. And so if you've got a Bible there, you might want to open up to chapter 25. In chapters 25, just to give you a bit of an overview, chapters 25 to 31, God provides the instructions for the tabernacle, this tent, this place of meeting. And in chapters 35 to 40, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, and we'll see in the, in the weeks coming, 
We see the actual execution of what he's described, what God is describing in chapters 25 to 31. So we're going to see a little of this tabernacle. We're going to see the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to see the table for the bread, the lampstand and the altar. That's what we're going to have a look at this morning. But you'll notice from our reading that the description starts with the contributions, with money being collected to build this sanctuary. The instructions begin with a heart check for the people of Israel. God is first and foremost concerned with his people's hearts. And so he begins by requesting a contribution from the people. We see there in chapter 25, verse 1. And he doesn't demand that the people give. It's not compulsory giving. He wanted those who were willing to give, verse 2, to contribute. And it's a reminder for us, God is not forcing any of us here this morning to worship him. But he does call for it. He does ask for it. He does invite us to come and worship him. And such an offering called for sacrifice for the people of old. The people denied themselves and followed the path that God had set before them. God requested specific contributions here. They weren't just random things that the people offered. Um, Sometimes at church and churches, uh, people give us random things. Uh, You know, they're cleaning out their cupboards, they're cleaning out their house, and we get, you know, all manner of things given to us. Well, it's not just anything that God asks of his people. It's quite specific. Uh, The materials here are described. They include gold, silver, bronze, coloured yarn, God is telling them exactly what to do. And they knew what was expected and what was required. And this level of detail demonstrates something important to us. That God cannot just be approached spontaneously or casually. He is not our mate. He's not the big man upstairs or a genie that you approach on your own terms to get what you want. We're reminded here that God is the Almighty One, the Creator and the Redeemer, and that the resources given to make the tabernacle were not the people's resources themselves. You might remember where all this stuff came from, all this gold and all these materials. They came from the Egyptians. God promised that they would not leave empty-handed back in chapter 3. And God kept his promise, as we saw like three or four weeks ago, as the Israelites were sent out of Egypt. They were sent out in chapter 12 with great wealth. And so what they were to give wasn't theirs in the first place. It was given to them by God. God provided those goods and the people were to return a portion of what God had given to them. And that's a great reminder for us as well as we give of our resources. The resources that we have are the resources that God has given us, our time, our money, the abilities that we have are gifts from God in order to be returned in portion to him. And sometimes I think our stinginess with our time and talent and money comes because we don't actually believe that God has given us these things. We think that they're ours. 
but we should see ourselves as people who have been entrusted with great blessing. And it is fantastic that we as a church can testify to how God has used our resources for his glory as we've worshipped him freely and as we've responded to what he has given us. In verses 8 and 9, we see the purpose of this tabernacle. This sanctuary means a holy place, a place where God is to dwell in their midst. And so there is a purpose to this structure that God is telling the people to make. The purpose is that God would dwell amongst them. And this place is to be a holy place. And what makes it holy is not really how it's made. The place becomes holy when God's presence engulfs what has been made. God made the place holy. It wasn't the men or those who brought the materials who made it holy. God made it holy. And once he made it holy, it was to be used as he intended it to be used. It was going to be this this house, this place where the glory of the God who had rescued them could be amongst us and therefore it was to be built in his, on his terms and not the people's terms. This is God's initiative. Just as their rescue was God's work, now the people are to worship, not as they like, but as God prescribes. It's vital because it would show that the people are responding in obedience to their king. And it would also help in order for them to understand who it was that they were worshipping. In these chapters, we see really that the main point of this whole book of Exodus, that the Lord was showing that he is the God who rescues and that he is to be their God. And so we'll we'll look at some of the details of this tabernacle there in um, chapters 25 to 27. Because God is dwelling with his people in vivid and powerful ways. While the tabernacle wasn't really kind of a large, ornate place of worship, there are other, we have from the ancient world, records of um, other places of worship, and they're quite large and ornate. But... What God prescribes here it has been designed perfectly by God and it's to show his people that he is present amongst them. And we see his presence in a number of ways. We're going to have a look at the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the table, the gold lamp and the bronze altar. So firstly, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the, the Ark of the Covenant is the most important, really, item that's contained within this structure. The Ark of the Covenant was here, was there to show that God was present. And he was present in a particular way, in a majestic and powerful way. The majestic holiness of God contained in this box was required to be transported by two poles And it was to prevent any man from touching this ark directly because if they were to touch it, they were to die. We see that later on in 2 Samuel 6 where someone tries to stop the ark from falling and dies. And there on this ark was was this lid, this cover, a, a mercy seat. 
And here on that mercy seat, the Lord himself met with his people. This is where the sacrifice of atonement would be held, where the sprinkling of the blood would be scattered upon this mercy seat by the high priest. And there it's demonstrating that God is to be approached in not any way, but in a specific way. And God is to be met with in this ark. In fact, he is to be communed with. And this could only take place once a year through the blood of goats and bulls. Through this atonement cover, God revealed that sinners cannot come to God without a mediator. At that mercy seat upon that ark, God met with sinners And later on we see in the Bible that uh, Christ's work and his provision of salvation was described like what happened at the mercy seat in the book of Romans in 1 John. And on top of that mercy seat, there were cherubim of gold. And these gold cherubim, these gold angels faced each other and they bowed towards this ark. These tremendous angels bowing down remind us of the great reverence that we must have for the majesty of God. These angels are warriors. They are mighty. But in the presence of God, they bow before him. And these angels also serve as a sign of his presence and work. Because if these angels are near... It's a reminder to the people that God is working. The Ark of the Covenant reminds us that God is present in in a majestic way and in a merciful way. We also see there described in chapter 25, verse 23 to 30, that there is a table. God describes that this table would be placed outside the most holy place. This table is to be made of acacia wood and covered in gold like the ark. And the table was set up in the holy place. The table was not as significant as what was actually on it. Because what was on this table was 12 loaves of bread. And these 12 loaves of bread symbolised symbolised God's people, Israel. There was a loaf for each tribe. And the bread served as a reminder as they saw those 12 loaves on the table that each and every tribe played a role. Each tribe had a seat at the table, if you like. And the table was a reminder of God's provision. It was the Lord's table and it was his bread. And God's fellowship was displayed through this provision And it's a reminder for us too that we are fed by the grace of God, that he sustains us. In John chapter 6, Jesus told us that God is the one who gives bread from heaven and that true bread is the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life who has come and whoever comes to him will never hunger and thirst again. So we've got the ark, we've got the table, We've also got there in chapter 25, verses 31 to 40, this lampstand. 
Now, this lampstand was placed um, in the holy place, directly across from the table. It was handcrafted and made from around 40 kilograms of gold. This was no Ikea lamp. This was a lamp of incredible value. And from the base of the lamp came many branches. God instructed Moses to make certain instruments that were to be used for the lamp, like snuffers and firepans there in verse 38. And the lamp was to shine on what was in front of it there in verse 37. There was something important practically about this lamp, but it was showing and demonstrating something as well. We see throughout scripture that God is light. His light symbolises his presence and his holiness. At the very end of the Bible, we see that the removal of the lampstand means that God's presence has departed his people in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. And in addition to the sacrifices, God's people were also to bring olive oil for the lamp at the tabernacle there in chapter 27. The priests were to keep this lamp burning continually, signifying that God was present continuing. As long as that lamp burned, it showed that God was with his people. So the lamp showed God's presence through light. See, the lampstand, the table, the loaves, the ark, and finally the bronze altar. The next instructions there in chapter 27, if you want to flip over there, verses 1 and 8, were to include this uh, construction of this bronze altar. And it stood at the outer courtyard so that the people approached it as they entered. God told his people to make it again out of acacia wood and to cover it with bronze. And it was not to be permanently fixed because it had poles as well, like the ark. God promised to live amongst his people and when they travelled and wherever they went God was with them God's people constructed this altar so that the sacrifices could be made the altar was the first thing that the worshippers would see when they were entering and it was a reminder that they're being confronted with this massive, it's quite large altar it was a reminder that there had to be sacrifice in order to come into the presence of God. And all these details, and there's, there's more, but we've only picked out five. All these details are a great reminder to us of what we see in the Lord Jesus. All these details point us forward to what we have in him because ultimately the tabernacle points to the one true presence of God dwelling with us. In the Lord Jesus. Just as the people of old struggled with how they could approach God with their sin and Him in His holiness, the Lord Jesus reminds us that we cannot approach Him. We cannot approach Him, we cannot approach God freely apart from the Lord Jesus. All this furniture, all these items, and all this process that's described in detail in chapters 25 to 27 in the book of Exodus is all about bringing those who aren't holy into the presence of God. 
John said that Jesus took up residence or tabernacled amongst us in our second reading in John chapter 1. And the tabernacle provides an amazing representation of the Lord Jesus and what he has done. Because we do not have a bronze altar here this morning. We do not have the Ark of the Covenant. We do not have a lampstand. We do not have some tabernacle or tent. But we have the Lord Jesus, who is the true light, the true lampstand, the light of the world in John chapter 8. We are the ones who were once in darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Therefore, through Christ, we must walk, as Ephesians tells us, walk as children of light. God's presence is also portable in this new covenant, this new way that God has come in the Lord Jesus. God's spirit has come to us and he lives amongst his people in Romans 8. The Lord Jesus is the mediator who shed his own blood to redeem sinful people like you and me. Jesus is the better ark, just like the ark in 1 Samuel chapters 4-7 to as it was taken into captive by a foreign army and it took the punishment that the people deserve. Jesus also represents the ultimate provision of God. He himself calls himself the bread of life and whoever comes to him will never perish. He is the bread that we desperately need. He is the better altar. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us his ultimate sacrifice is the salvation and source of grace by which our hearts are strengthened. We now enter not by the veil, but by, and not by the highest priest, but by the torn veil, the torn body of Christ that provides access. He can provide access to God the Father who dwells with us, access past these cherubim, instead of defending these angels against us approaching God, the angels are now welcoming us to come to the Lord Jesus. And we can come boldly, the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4. We can come boldly into his presence because of the blood of Jesus. And God is building a new dwelling place. It's not here. It's ahead of us. It's a dwelling place where God's spirit dwells. We see that, that God's spirit dwells in individual believers and corporately together as a church, that we together are a building made of living stones where Christ is our cornerstone. And so this morning, might we be reminded that as we look at these details, as we see the ways in which the people of God came into the presence of God, May we be reminded of the Lord Jesus and may we behold his glory. One uh, commentator, a man called John Owen, said this. He says, by beholding the glory of Christ, we shall experience what it means to be everlastingly blessed. And so this morning, friends, as we just get a glimpse of what it is to come to God, him in his awesome, wondrous holiness and us in our sin and the Lord Jesus by his blood drawing us to the presence of the Father. 
we're reminded that we shall always be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians, that we shall always be with Christ, that we shall behold his glory, John 17, and by seeing him, we shall be made like him. So as we consider the Lord Jesus, as we consider him this morning and the access that he has given us, let us praise him for the way in which he has opened us opened up for us this curtain. And since he's opened up this curtain, what ought we to do? Well, Hebrews 10 says that we ought to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. It's a great reminder for us this morning that we can access God, that he has come to us and that he now invites us. And so this morning, by faith, And through the grace of the Lord Jesus, let us come close to him. Amen. Please stand as we sing.